Welcome to a new year and a new season. I can't believe we're kicking off season four. Something that started off as let's just make our expert interviews public became a community and robust discussion stream with progress makers. And we're approaching our hundredth episode, which will also be followed by many cool events. And as a kickoff to our season, we have an absolute powerhouse joining us. I'm happy to say that our first session is with Pascal Sablan. She's the associate principal at Ajay Associates and the 315th living African-American woman registered architect in the U.S. So let that sink in for a minute. In 2021, Pascal received the AIA Whitney Young Jr. Award and ascended to the AIA College of Fellows. Pascal is the president of the National Organization of Minority Architects. She has been quoted in the New York Times and Forbes magazine regarding her efforts and was featured on Oprah's Future Rising platform as a Black trailblazer moving our world forward. And a trailblazer she is. Pascal, lovely to have you. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm also going to bring a burst of energy. So I really hope you and your listeners are ready. I love it. I love it. I love it. So please tell us a little bit more about your life background and journey and how you got to today and do what you do. Sure. So um, honestly, my journey began in Queens. I'm um, born and raised from Queens, New York, uh, where I was always an artist as a kid, um, you know, always creating art and leaning into my creativity. And uh, when I was about 11 or 12, I was commissioned to do a mural at the Pamanak Community Center. And while I was drawing my multi, uh, this jungle gym with a multicultural kind of community represented, somebody walked by and said, whoa, you could draw straight lines without a ruler. That's a really great skill for an architect to have. And just like, <laughs> and I remember this person really having more of an out loud thought than it was actually engaging me. But without that person kind of putting, planting that seed, I don't know when architecture and design would have been offered as a career choice. But when he said it, I said, Eureka, like, it's perfect. It's a, a field where I can leverage my creativity and literally change the world. So there is nobody in my upbringing, community, family, who is surprised that ultimately that is what I worked to become as an architect. Um, and even through high school, when I started applying to colleges, I was applying to only schools that had really intense architecture programs. And not like large universities that had like hundreds and hundreds of majors, which gave my family heart palpitations because they're like, well, what if you go in <laughs> and you don't like it? You're going to like waste a year transferring and et cetera. Um, and so my mom signed me up to what's an architect seminar at One Penn Plaza um, in New York, in the city. And that's, you know, right when we're triggering off of tokens and using Metro cards, I learned how to use a Metro card. And I would come to the city every other Wednesday, I believe, to um, See, to participate in the seminar. And it was about 30 students. I believe I was the only woman. I am. I was the only girl uh, in the group. And they took us to construction sites, newly constructed projects, firms, model shops. Like they just like really demystified what it was to be an architect. And it just really fortified like my statement. Like, yes, I get to make models. This is so for me. Um, and so I felt that much more confident kind of going into school and studying architecture. I got my bachelor's degree of architecture, my five-year bachelor's degree from Pratt Institute in Brooklyn. And then I went to Columbia University for my master's of science in advanced architectural design. Yes, I have two degrees in architecture. That is how <laughs> dedicated and like I was all about that life. Um, 
But one of the important aspects of what happened uh, to me during my education process that really formed my position as, a, as an architect is during one of the first like, week or two of architecture school, a professor asked me and another student in the audience to stand. And it was during the speeches about like architecture is so difficult, look to your left, look to your right, that person's not going to be there, the drop off rate is et cetera, et cetera. And then, so at the mm -hmm. tail end of that speech, he asked us to stand up. And when we did, uh, he said, okay, these two will never become architects because they're black and because they're women. And I was surprised that a teacher who like didn't know me, know my name, know my capacity would make such a strong proclamation. I was sh shocked that out of a group of like what 60 students that only two of us felt, you know, filled that profile and how quiet and silent my peers were in the classroom. But what that also showed to me was that whenever I walk into the space, I wasn't just representing Pascal, but that I'm representing women and I'm present representing people of color. So I have a responsibility to show up and show out at all aspects at all times. So it doesn't matter that I'm not feeling good and don't want to go to class. No, I can't be the black girl that doesn't go to class because I don't want it to be an indicator about how all of us kind of move through space. Um, but coupled with that responsibility, it also made me understand my purpose, which was I couldn't just become an architect. I actually had to also change the way the profession works. And that yeah. leads me into like my career, my trajectory, the products that I get to work on. And now in this moment, I'm sitting here as a mom, a mother of an amazing, incredible six-year-old. I'm also a founder of an advocacy organization called Beyond the Built Environment. I am also the fifth woman ever president of the National Organization of Minority Architects. And under my presidency, I'm pushing a global agenda, which is important about not just breaking the lines and these boundaries around the U.S. in terms of dealing with these issues, but also creating muscle and power around smaller groups and organizations of minority groups around the world who need more support to realize justice yeah. in their countries and in their communities. Um, I'm also an associate principal at AJ Associate, the work that he does, but not just the quality and the demand of excellence, but the communities that he's designing for and the research and the justice that he's realizing with his work is also part of it. Um, and so part of my role at the office is to be an architect activist. And so this is incredible to me that I do not need to pick or select which part of my identity I'm able to pull forward. I'm able to be a thousand percent myself, curly hair and all, um, into these spaces um, and be able to kind of advocate for justice and, and, and uh, a more equitable and just profession and world uh, through all these spaces and spaces that I'm holding. I, oh my God, I have so many follow-up questions. So first of all, I mean, no one, like it takes a certain character and personality to be able to take a very discouraging feedback by an educator, by the way, like this is an episode topic on its own, like somewhere else, right? Um, took it as like a defining factor for your like uh, responsibility as a human being and towards your community and the world, right? So it takes a certain level of like energy of like mindset to be able to do that. So I want to like applaud you for that, like, first of all. Um, but I, I will say there's privilege there because I love Pratt. I still wear Pratt as my school ring of where I learned how to become an architect. I'm very integrated into Pratt and supported everywhere and however I possibly can. Because for me, and this is my privilege, I only had one singular moment. Yeah. And when I lecture and I engage communities and audiences, I ask the audience to stand if they've ever been told they're inadequate because of their gender and race. And people stand. So it didn't just happen to me. 
part of yeah. the infrastructure that's holding back the exploration of diversity and equity in our profession and in our world. Yeah. So I bring voice to that story to say, like, it's not just happening to me. It's, it's something that we need to address systematically together, but also recognizing it wasn't something that I had to do every day. Right. Like that professor said that statement once sure. and he didn't drill down on it every single time he saw me. Right. And no okay. other professor brought that up and no other classmate ever said anything remotely similar. So for me, yeah. my privilege was that I had one singular moment um, and then was able to flourish and to learn and to, to, to attain the degree that I, that I wanted to, to build the network that I needed to and to gain the intellectual like prowess that allowed me to just raw through the rest of the profession in my career. So, but understanding and appreciating and acknowledging that not everyone has that. Some people, it's their everyday yeah. experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's, and those are the people that truly I want to applaud, as well as those who also stood and persevered and also showed up and showed out into the profession and is making incredible waves at that capacity. That's a great point. And also like bringing awareness to the problem itself and making sure uh like help people understand that this is not a singular problem or like this is not my problem or your problem. It's a collective problem. Um, because to your point, you know, like years ago uh, when I was in consulting and I was dealing with a lot of um, real estate individuals, um, I did not necessarily see a lot of women in the room. And I was also like younger. So I wasn't maybe taken seriously because I'm a woman. I'm also like young, whatever, like all the above. Right. So sometimes I would meet women who's, who are in position of power, but I would also see that, you know, there was kind of like a wall around them. Like it felt like they were either not themselves to be able to either fit in, survive, right? Like, so whatever they might have to have gone through individually to be able to come to that position, which was not to their, you know, uh, I don't want to like, like even being there on its own must have been very hard for them. So I don't want to put responsibility on them, but them being them, them not being themselves did not help me. It didn't open the way for me. So, so I want I mean, to talk to you a, about that a little bit. Yeah, that's a great topic because I often talk about like my hair usually religiously used to be flat iron fit straight. And I was subscribing to this kind of European ideal of what beauty was, right? And it really took me having a child or kind of working towards that to say, how can I teach this child to love themselves if I'm working at great lengths for hours at a time weekly um, to make me look different, right? And that curly hair is equally as beautiful and as professional as straight hair. Now I'm able to oscillate between the two, but the idea of feeling beautiful no longer yeah. resides in one particular kind of aesthetic. The other thing that came out that was really important that I want to be honest about is my name. My name is Pascal Sablon. My maiden name was Pascal St. Louis. And so I loved my name because it was so ambiguous. You couldn't tell whether I was a woman, whether I was a man, mm. what gender, what race, what ethnicity. You couldn't quite tell by my name. And I felt like it was a great name to help me navigate some of the oppressive mm. struggles that most people do, right? And then I watched a TV show called Blackish that had a whole episode about naming their youngest child about a name that was ambiguous so you didn't really know or like leaning in and just calling them a name that was incredibly obvious and indicative of culture. And that conversation really highlighted to me how flawed my thinking was because your name is literally your identity. 
it is your culture, it is your kinship, it's your your history, your legacy, your tradition of family. And the fact that I was thinking that my name was great because you couldn't tell was problematic. And so whenever mm. somebody reads my bio, the first sentence typically starts with Pascal Sablon, a black woman architect. If there's <laughs> anything in that first sentence that rubs you the wrong way, do not proceed to read. We do not need to connect. <laughs> right? here's where it is. And so I say all that to say, not that like I've always been living my best self or always been living my authentic self. It's these moments of learning, these moments of self-reflection. It's these moments of, of, whoa, how am I imposing some of these oppressive structures that I've been taught onto myself? And once you start to identify those things and kind of pull them away, then there's a level of audaciousness that you pull up. in a podcast recording with the shirt with at least a thousand and one colors and feel fine you know what I'm saying so it's a whole part of that experience but it's so like I mean it's so important though right like I think but you touched upon something beautiful which I want to mention because it also is problematic in industry and business in general being a mom right and you're put it you can put be put into like a mental silo if you know you're a mom to be or a mother already I'm a mother of a very feisty four-year-old uh girl and um like to your exactly to your point I felt more responsible of being my authentic self after I became a mother just because I was like what am I modeling to her right so it's And I think, you know, like we often talk about, like, I also talk about being a mother made me more efficient. I actually think I work better. I think I'm more mindful about our like global situation because I'm more considering possibly the future of hers, right? So I I want you to like talk about that a little bit too. Like in, in terms of, you know, another thing that is possibly both in like the industry, like architectural industry and many other industries, like, being a mother is also a nonstop challenge. Like the benefit that also like it infuses you both like as an individual and to your like environment. I mean, that's a, that's a great point. And a few things. The first is sometimes I'll be asked a question, was there any point in time in your career where you thought you didn't belong in architecture and that you needed to bow out? And my very honest answer is when I had my child. Yeah. Because I was at a firm that I was flourishing in for a decade, doing great. And then the minute that I had a kid, all of a sudden, I was just like this terrible employee that needed to have like constant conversations. And the ability to go on maternity leave or parental leave um, and feel like my job was secure was, a, was something that I, I didn't have. Right. Um, and the, the feedback that I was receiving once I returned wasn't helpful. And so, I thought in this moment, crap, I have to, I have to pick between working at yeah. a firm that does great design and being a, a mom that's extraordinary. Um, mm-hmm. And I didn't like those odds. And so that I, I promise you, because, you know, we talk about like the pregnancy and the giving birth and then you have the baby and then you come back. But like there's so much more of what your body needs to go through to heal from that whole process of spending almost a year cultivating a yeah. whole new life. Right. Just. I was just not as sharp mentally to be able to think about things as quickly as I got there. But like two months <laughs> after giving birth, I get the office telling to me about meeting minutes, bro, like you got to give me some minutes to like figure it out. And so it was a lot to kind of just in, in the, I was also nursing. And so 
the requirement for the time that I needed throughout the day to be able to lean into that and be told you take too many breaks. It's like, I, I promise you, nothing about pumping is a break. It is a, break. It is a painful, messy process. Miss me. And it is not a break, right? And so just like those conversations and having to advocate and actually advocate for things that you think are too intimate and personal to share. Like I will yeah. say like, you know, it wasn't a great experience at that firm, but also I didn't feel like I could communicate. Like I didn't say here's where I was struggling. I just trying my best to catch up to being who I was before birth. And so that was like really like a big moment of like, okay, I just need to be honest yeah. about those spaces. So when I talked to in potential employers and I'll see the next steps in my career, the conversation was like, I want to be an architect working on dope projects. I want to be an activist that's pushing us to be better. And I want to be like the most incredible mom that gets like the mom of the year award every year, right? Like relentlessly, no, no shade. And these are parts again of my identity that I'm bringing forward to those conversations. And then as it relates to Xavier himself, he is the best child. Like I mean, <laughs> He was solid in the stomach. He didn't give me too much problems when he's out. He was like sleeping through the night from the very beginning. I called my doctor. I was like, uh, shouldn't, shouldn't he be keeping me up? And they're like, are you complaining? I said, no, ma'am. No, ma'am. I'm not complaining. I just, it's not what TV had taught me. Um, and Xavier has maintained this beautiful oh. blend between me and, and my, my, his dad of like just calmness and brilliance and warmth and lovingness. And just, he's incredible. So because of his calm demeanor, and his very respectful demeanor, I'm able to take him with me. So Xavier would go with me to board meetings and travel the world with me and see me in these spaces and be crawling under general body meetings. And I'm like, if you see up here something by your foot, don't kick. He's too. He's just like, you know, trying to give him something to do. <laughs> um, you know, just kind of like really creating him and putting him in those spaces. And as recently as a, an AIA Westchester lecture I gave, um, it was supposed to be for two hours. It ended up being for three. This kid got on the train with me. We went up there. He sat in the audience. He gave me thumbs up. He would wave from time to time. Aww. The thing lasted for three hours because it was like a panel discussion with six people. And he was like, people are like, Who's, whose kid is this? Because he's like, amazing. <laughs> and afterwards, we're in the Uber ride getting back home. And I said to Xavier, you know, honestly, Xavier, the, the way you behave supports me to do the work that I'm trying to do to make the world better. And he turns to me, he goes, Always a pleasure, mama. Always a pleasure. To the point where the Uber driver was like, who is in my car? Like, it was like the most insane. So what people have also told me um, in, this, in this process is that me showing up to a board meeting with Xavier showed that they can, right? Me literally yeah. nursing Xavier exactly. doing one of my report outs was to show like, oh, this isn't something that you need to hide or be tucked away or take a pause for a year to do. If you don't want to, if you do you have the capacity, but to say you can be doing all these great things and be a parent is really powerful and important of a messaging. So again, when I can, yeah. I bring Xavier into those spaces with me. I want him to hear me fighting for these things. I want him to understand the legacy. But as to your point about being more effective and efficient with my time, I go to sleep with Xavier at 9.30. His bedtime is my <laughs> bedtime, but I wake <laughs> up at four in the morning. And yeah. because what I want is when I get home from work, he has my undivided attention. There is no computer work happening. There's minimal social media that's happening. This is when we are on the floor building toys, playing with dinosaurs, yeah. and like just having fun. We go to sleep. And then in the morning, I'm waking up to an empty, quiet house and I'm able to knock out 
emails, submissions, yeah. whatever I need to. So that again, I can show up and be the person, the architect, the parent, uh, the partner that I want to be. Um, and so I think exactly. there's not necessarily that he made me more efficient, uh, but he made my priorities um, that much more evident and one that I felt less apologetic about pushing into spaces and then have been yeah. blessed with mentors and job opportunities that say, I see you. I see all these parts of you. And not only are they welcome, but we're going to pour into you support and resources so that you can sustain it and elevate all of it that you're doing. Yeah, I, I, I love that you use the word like not apologetic for something also that is so human, right? I hear like all the time I'm in a meeting and one of the people who is like trying to like get in a meeting even from home next to a toddler who's having a full tantrum, like credit for you to like even like trying to pay attention to that meeting at the moment and still like trying to apologize for the noise. And I'm like, don't apologize for a kid for demonstrating age appropriate behavior. Like this is just human. Like we need to move beyond that. But the thing that you're doing in terms of like just normalizing what is already that like normal, right? Like this was all normal. We're all human. We, I think the pandemic broke that a little bit where like we had a very professional and personal facade before, or we were like forced to and the pandemic because it like forced us to blend it all in like overnight. It was like suddenly out in the air and exposed. And I hope we don't forget it that like that kind of like brought in the human visibility, but like continuing to own that and also like show that this is normal. You could, you and not to like create a dream of like, you know, I also like really don't like these things. Oh, you can balance it all, right? Like women can do it all. Doesn't matter if you're like black woman and a mom, right? Like you can still like do it at all. Like, no, like it takes a village. It takes a lot of energy and it includes a mega support system, including your own child, <laughs> right? So like really like also like describing on, on how this all works is part of like the being real side that we're like also talking about to your, exactly to your point absolutely but I do I want to ask about so when I was reading your bio I'm like okay like this is like maybe fake because it's too good <laughs> so I'm like reading it I'm like oh my god like how impressive including like 315 living African-American woman registered architect so I'm like and, you know, guys, like there's billions of people in the world. Um, just, you know, to give context on like what this ratio is. And then, you know, um, we were like part of like a documentary on Design for All. And there, there, there was also like a conversation on uh, African-American women uh, in architecture, like 0.3% of architecture, like architect body. So, yeah, because there's, and, uh, there's roughly 115,000 architects in the U.S., um, like you said, I was a 300, I am the 315th living African-American woman architect. I'm also the, um, the 21st African-American fellow, um, the youngest fellow, uh, of the college of fellows ever in its 167 years. And when we talk about fellowship or even think about fellowship, I'm only the second in New York, uh, and Roberta Washington is the first. And so, um, I hear you in terms of statistics, it's absolutely accurate because if you're thinking about 315 out of 115,000, you know, the numbers are, are wild and, you know, we're still pushing and clearly people have become licensed since I got licensed many moons ago. So we're, we're more now at 540, but what's powerful is you can actually ask these women 
their number. Like, what's your number? And they'll know. And I, I know. Took, okay, I took this picture. <laughs> I took this picture at the Smithsonian with Dan, Danny Cesario, uh, Jennifer Newsom, myself, and Dr. Sharon Sutton. And um, I want to say Danny Cesario was number 333. And okay. I, I want to say Jennifer Newsom was 197. And oh then God. Sharon Sutton said, oh, I'm number seven. <gasps> oh my God. And, and I'm going to email you this picture so that you can see what I mean Please when I do. say there is no reason why she is number seven. Like it, 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 it was just kind of insane to kind of see, but we all know our number and how we place. It. And I know architects like, you know, Samantha Josephat, who started her own studio, Studio 397, is because her number was 397. And so we are constantly like really capturing and tracking this because it's important for us to understand and hold the profession accountable to the increase yeah. of our profession and trajectory and mentorship in the profession as well because it's systematic in terms of the reasons why our numbers are low it's not just because we don't have an affinity for it we have exactly. various moments of being asked to stand or various moments of being told you're inadequate uh for just being ourselves exactly exactly and while like it's like it's insane to even like think of such number and so among so many people right like are there even other like numbers like this exist anymore for like community it's like insane well and it was uh it was the directory of african-american architects was started by bradford c grant and dennis mann and so what they've done was like they were getting people to kind of send their um, certificates or you know notifications of yeah. them being licensed and they were kind of putting it up on the website to start, start to build that accountability um, and Noma um, recently took over the directory because uh, the university mm -hmm. kind of that was under ceased to fund it. Um, and so we kind of continue to build the infrastructure. People could continue to submit that was honestly started by two brilliant people who, you know, had their reasons for it to try to try to get as much projects and jobs to people so that people knew per state yeah. what were the options. And so now we're using it for both that, but also from a level of accountability to the office and an office to the profession and a repository for everyone to kind of start sharing that information. And then also really tapping into some of those affinity groups that have robust organizations to say, hey, is this mm. something you want us to hold? Or is this something that you are holding and you want NOMA to kind of do a hyperlink to kind of transition forward and, and help share data and information as we get it? So it's, it's all kind yeah. of building that resource together to get there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I think, you know, I do want to like, talk about these numbers because like going back to the systemic problem that you like mentioned because like when you look even like reflect on your education and the experience you had there uh, which still for like a kid right like a very young individual it could be so um detrimental but you could see like oh my privilege was that I came across that once and you say it's a privilege because you know, there's only 0.3%. Like it's zero. Like you see that as a privilege because how it actually exists in reality, I think, is reflected by these numbers. So I see that you already own the responsibility that that brings you, and kind of like see how you know we change this for the future. But I do want to also talk about kind of like the pressure of this responsibility a little bit because even like with a, being a mother, we talked about like it takes a village, it takes a support system. There's a lot of conversation, gladly now, especially against this pandemic, more around like mental health, right? Or like community trauma and things like that. So like, what would you, like, I don't want to like discuss those recommendations, but more in your own personal journey or knowing that 
even if you like want to become an African-American, you know, uh, woman architect, the journey you might be taking on and how, how do you build that support system? And we talked about like how we could model to the next generation to like make it easier, but while you're navigating what needs to happen or like, what did you experience that you feel like is changing now or should change? I mean, that's a tough question because I feel like you you build your plane while you're flying it in a lot of mm. ways. And it's really, your plane is going to be developed based off of what you personally need. I, I think there's so many questions that we're trying to solve with general um, solutions that really require bespoke solutions. And so really yeah. it's about the pushing and advocating for the process of asking and engaging those who we're serving. And I just don't mean that in terms of like motherhood or person of color or people, but also marginalized groups of society that are not, that are harmed by architecture um, yeah. and also engaging them in these discourse and conversations that we as architects are not the owners of the built environment, but just stewards of the resources of how to manifest and transform it. Um, and that we really need to be leveraging conversations with everyone whose voice matters and a lot of voices matter in developing and creating significant and substantial architecture that's not just beautiful, but effective in eradicating racism and sexism from the built environment. Yeah. And part of that is just the different identities. And so that's why I kind of checked myself earlier when I said uh, maternity leave, I was like, no, nah, parental leave, because fathers or you know different family structures require that same level of leave right and so it's about understanding what are the requirements and the nuances of these distinctions and being really really careful about language and so the other aspect of it is as we talk about um, the profession being accommodating to these changing of family structures and what that means to everyone and not just the, the yeah. mom of that group but let's like let's be real honest about the built environment and how it's not designed for us. And when I and when I say for us, I mean specifically for women um, in a lot of ways. Yeah. A lot of the standards in terms of the size and, and elevations of chairs, tables, cabinets, all that is designed to a male proportion. The levels of temperatures that we hold in spaces is not based off of us in blouses, but it's in men in three-piece suits. And so that's why all the women got you know, sweaters on the back of their chairs, freezing not half of the time of the year, right? And then, and then also mother spaces, like, you know, all these mothering pods that I'm seeing pop up in public spaces bring me so much joy because the yeah. amount of weird, crusty locations that I had to plug in a pump and whip out my boob, there's a whole population of this planet that has seen my boob now in this nursing process because there wasn't a space that was designed and dedicated to me is yeah. serious. And even at the firm that I was at, we, we were switching a conference room between being a conference room and a mother's room. And so if a meeting went long, we were just kind of stuck outside. And what that meant was my body had already gotten familiar uh -huh. with 11, right? And so now I'm standing there and I'm wet with my clothes. And so I have to have an extra blouse or an extra dress in my cabinet at work at all times because of these moments. And so what I'm seeing that I'm appreciating is these mothering pods and I'm seeing spaces yeah. in bathrooms where you're not up against a toilet where somebody's pooping to be able to do that work. Exactly. And, and it's also about men's restrooms also being fit out with changing tables because we all be changing babies and to see photos of, of different dads <laughs> showing different postures and positions they figured out in the floor of a bathroom to keep <laughs> from laying their child on the floor 
these are all ways of just like us as the built environment yeah. and designers to really reconsider how an individual in their totality enters and requires spaces to support them. And then really being right. nimble in terms of the designing spaces to do just that. And the last thing I'll say, because I feel it, I know I'm long with it, but something that was also really powerful for me was the ADA Act and seeing mm. how that came to fruition, which was a series of protesters who came to like, you know, government buildings that had a series of steps and got off of their wheelchairs and crutches and started to climb those steps on their forearms and elbows to visually show how oppressive the built environment is against them because they're not designed and accommodated for. And so now the ADA is not a rule, it's a, it's a, it's a law. And so we have to follow it and we have to continue to refine it. And that's brilliant. And it's also a really important lesson for the profession that if we are not designing for the community, for everyone in our communities, then they have the right, the authority and my full support to go above our heads and make it and find it and realize it because that is what they deserve and they have should have always had access to. I, I mean, I love, 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 love everything that you're saying so much. And, you know, really understanding that not only our behaviors shape our environments, but our environments shape our behaviors. So if we want, like, uh, if, you know, there's like conversations around inclusion, for example, in a workplace environment or, you know, in any organization, you also want to physically see it in the space. You want to see the cues and signals that you're welcome there. So it's a really important you brought it up. And also to but the point that like- I'll give you oh. another example. Um, when I first started at AJ Associates, I, literally, I called my mom about this. I promise you already. <laughs> yeah. I logged into the timesheets system. And in the timesheet system, there's already pre-propagated kind of pre -propagated kind of tasks, general office, holiday, blah, blah, blah. Mm. Advocacy was one of the things that is already standard timesheet in this office because a lot of firms a lot of offices talk about advocacy and they see it as a volunteer service you're doing at your during your lunch hour or after hours in addition to your job and yeah. by seeing advocacy being on the timesheet like structure meant not only is it default it. for everybody which means we anticipate and expect everyone to have some level of advocacy but we put time and resources and money into it as well and that i love that i promise you made me feel welcome and at home immediately amazing amazing i love that i love that so yes, much i don't feel like thinking exactly. about timesheets that is absolutely <laughs> correct that's how we're going to spend the next two minutes <laughs> but that's your day it's so important i get you oh my god that's and that's brilliant that's a very authentic example of like how you should be really um you know walking the talk whatever that thing is right like just like really committing to that and also too, like you brought up ADA and the notion on like, you know, continuing to develop on, you know, built environment tends to get static, right? So we gotta understand also like representation is not inclusion, right? Or like one law doesn't mean it's good for the next hundred year. Like we should be talking about intersectionality of spaces and everything above. So in that sense, that the, again, going back to the importance of the advocacy work too, because it takes the village to also push those boundaries and get out of them continually to evolve because we all just change and the world changes and we kind of that, like that and that. the idea so of that like you cannot impose the marginalized group with the responsibility of eradicating yeah. uh, the oppressive infrastructures that was built around around them like 
exactly. it really requires everyone to identify through their passions, through their lens, through their reach and through their capacity, their role and realizing a more just future. And it, it, it cannot just be for those with disabilities to advocate for disabilities. That's yeah. because as we, if they created the problem. Right. And we can't like think about uh, my minorities in the as, as the ways of the group that are typically in those DEI committees and being tasked to lead these efforts and are being um, hired as directors of Jedi work, they also cannot also be the ones effectively implementing all of the changes, but just a level of accountability and a level of expertise yeah. and authentic perspective from that role, but it's not for them only exclusively to solve. And so, and also everybody needs patience. <laughs> listen no seriously this is not something that we're gonna solve today and maybe not tomorrow but it is not like mentorship it's not mentorship is not the problem like it is a complex multifaceted, multi-generational reinforced yeah. and 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 protected infrastructure of oppression that we're trying yeah. to disable and dis- dismantle excuse me and so it is going to take yeah. us time and we need to be as relentless as those um, structures and those policies that have been manifested as well. I love that because it's also a good segue to one of the advice. So we're starting with like patience and to practice that patience, any other advice or anything else you want to add like meditation or (laughs) like yoga? Well, I would say in terms of the advice that I wish I was told when I was younger is that there's a full network of people who are there to support. Um, you know, thinking back to that moment of standing, I felt alone, right? Aside from me and that one other person, it felt like it was my burden to deal with. And it didn't even occur to me to even to bring it to the administration of the school or to report it. I just thought that this was this was what life was, right? Um, and so to know that there's organizations like NOMA, right, or, or AIA um, that are able to create the muscle that you need to support and ensure that your experience is one that is just and one is that that you deserve is important and critical to understand. I think another big, really big thing that I wish somebody told me um, is that your classmates and peers in school end up really becoming the majority of your professional network. So seeing and learning who are the hard workers, who are the creative thinkers, who are the ones like, ooh, that model is always stunning, right? Or those drawings are always epic. Those people, those individuals are going to graduate around the same time you do. They're going to enter the workforce around the same time you do. They're going to get promoted and elevated at the same time you do. Um, and they're going to infiltrate into other sectors, whether they be on the developer side or the client side. And so really cultivating and nurturing and creating a long, long-lasting relationship with your colleagues and your classmates will yield into a nice, robust, and informative um, a professional network. And then lastly, as it comes and as it relates to advocacy, it really needs to be personal. It really needs to be mm-hmm. one that you find authentic self within. And then also just kind of understanding that you don't always have to start your own organization or start your own initiative. It is absolutely amazing and important to also pour into established structures who have the history and the legacy and the lessons learned from doing this work for decades. And so I say all this to say, I know I'm a founder, but I, <laughs> I did join NICOBA, which is the New York chapter of NOMA uh, in 2009. And I honestly didn't start my advocacy organization until 2018. When I w- felt vetted through the process, I felt very informed of what was going on. And I found this unique pocket 
of space that we weren't addressing. Um, not mm. because we didn't see that it was important, but just the bandwidth, right, of what we had. And I also thought I was uniquely, uh, characteristically and personality-wise, in the best position to fill that gap, right? And right. so with Beyond right. the Built Environment, and I know I speak about it in very general and loose terms, it's really about documenting and elevating the work and identities of women in BIPOC designers. And one of the most important and powerful and um, impactful um, efforts is the Say It Aloud exhibitions where we elevate women in BIPOC designers of that location. And so we've hosted 36 exhibitions so far. We're plan currently planning the 37th in Tennessee at the moment. Uh, we have elevated and, and celebrated 886 diverse designers globally. Our library, our digital library now holds and represents 70% of the US and 10% of the world in terms of representation. And so that's a really big deal in terms of, and it's constantly growing with every new exhibition. These profiles yeah. grow, everything grows. And so that, that our library, the Great Diverse Designers Library, is actually a free platform uh, resource for students, professors, uh, you know, people who are hiring and fire, like all of that, developers, publications, writers, researchers, historians, all will always have access to this ever-evolving um, repertoire. And it's not just a list of names, it's their names, it's their headshots, it's their bio, it's a project that they worked on, their proudest achievement, and it's all self-submitting. So they tell their story. And so they're in charge yeah. of telling their story, which is also powerful and important. And as Noma's global president, right, really because of all the international work that's going with, with Beyond the Built Environment, and also working for a global architecture firm that has offices in London and in Accra, I felt uniquely positioned to also push that agenda forward where we need to break beyond the boundaries of the U.S. and work forward. We are 39 professional chapters and 114 student chapters. Our trajectory of growth is, is significant and important and impressive. Uh, last year, we were at a membership total of 3,400, and I'm looking to reach at least 4,000 this year in the work that we're doing by expanding globally, but again, by reinforcing the purposes that we were founded on 52 years ago, right? And so this mm -hmm. is all the work that's part of that process and the hats that I'm wearing. And then also working with Sir David Ajay at Ajay Associates and being able to work on these critical and important cultural buildings and spaces for diverse communities globally is also something that's really powerful and important. So I say all this to say you all, as you are stepping into the profession, you do not need to compromise your identity and who you are and your passions and actuality, all of those things bringing put forward will make you that much more valuable, that much more happy in the work that you're doing and will infuse you with longevity to be able to continue to do that every day because architecture is a profession <laughs> that requires patience. Ooh, you like how I pull that together. <laughs> oh my god that was amazing so it was not only just like all great advice but also a great synopsis of just like everything we discussed so Pascal this was such a treat thank you so much for your time and you know we hope to just hear you talk at different places all the time <laughs> give, give me so a mic and I'll find, find a reason thank you again so much for having me I did want to correct something that I said I said Dr. Sharon Sutton was number eight she's actually number 12 I did find the photo on like my social media platform because I thought it was incredible. But uh, so you can see oh that's God, Jennifer awesome. Newsom, myself, Dr. Sharon Sutton, and uh, Danny Cesario. So again, she's 12. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. uh, well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you Thanks so much. For joining. For
Of course. And that is this week's episode of What's Wrong with the Podcast. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other podcasting platform. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel. Links can be found in the episode description, and you can also find them on our website, podcast.whatswrongwith.xyz. If you found value in the show, we would appreciate if you could rate us and leave a review, or you can simply tell your friends about us. For more details on our guests, follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Don't forget to join us next week. Thank you for listening.